This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals. This is the second set of the series and is devoted to redemption of which this is number one. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Romans chapter 3. In our first series, naturally, we were considering the book to which we have to turn for every feature and every item of instruction concerning God and his ways, his purposes, his methods, his requirements, our need, our response. The word of God itself must first of all be given its place. If it is authoritative, if it is inspired, if it is of God, then we have to appeal to it and abide by its teaching. We have sought to do that as far as our limitations permit us. And now we've had to say, what is the first of these fundamentals that we're going to consider? Well, there's a bare possibility that everyone would choose a different beginning. And I don't, in any sense, uh, intend to impose my thought upon you that the first of all, we must consider the redemptive side. But I'm morally certain it's very near the beginning of things and so without wasting time let us devote some of these studies to that which means so much to us and let us not forget meant so much to him. For there was no lifting of the sorrow and the suffering. There was no mitigating of the agony those words that were rung on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They weren't just a bit of theatricals. And if we once realise how redemption comes at the very beginning of all these purposes and developments of God's will, it will to a large extent enable us to perceive that there's a good deal of misunderstanding on the part of some people as to the very purpose of the Bible. Millions of years, in millions of ages, if you like, are crammed into one verse, Genesis 1, verse 1. When the beginning was, we can all guess, and none of us know. And after that one verse, we move from what you might call eternity to within almost measurable distance of time, only a few generations comparatively, not quite 6,000 years ago, to the reconstruction of this earth ready for one man, the only man as far as we know from any record that was created in the image and likeness of his maker. And it was because the time had come that in that man there should be deposited a chosen seed that had to be so important he gives his name to Christ, who is the second man and the last Adam. And one of the words which I think we do well to ponder, we may come to them presently in this series, are those which are written in Isaiah 53. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He shall see his seed. We're not going to preclude others. We don't know what God's mercy will do. But we are sure of this, 
that that seed was the object of satanic attack. And in the fall of Adam, that chosen seed became involved in the bondage of sin and death. And it was for their redemption in the first instance that God intervened at once and gave the promise of the seed of the woman, the bruising of the serpent's head, and all the types and shadows of deliverance with which we're familiar both in Old Testament and the reality of it in the New. Well now, we have in front of us, those of us who are in this chapel, and those of you who are listening to this tape recording, you have a chart, and you may be looking at the peculiar illustration at the top. I'm half tempted to ignore it. But then, of course, we don't want to have the post office loaded up with complaining letters, so I better just explain. Let me refer a little bit to our own language. One writer has spoken of poetry as fossilised language. That is to say, there are certain thoughts that come into the minds of men and gradually they take shape and they're buried in our language and then somebody lifts them out and gives them their new meaning or reflects upon their old meaning. I, I don't suppose whenever you use the word disaster or a catastrophe, you are personally conscious of using the word aster, which means a star, a disaster. Our earlier ancestors, when a disaster happened, they blamed it under the stars. But I've got a good many followers because I can't open a newspaper today without looking to see what disaster is waiting for me under my particular star. Not that I believe it, but there it is. And if you happen to suffer from influenza, you may not know that they didn't know anything about germs in the Middle Ages or they thought this was the influence of a star. So I should advise you still to go to the doctor rather than the astrologer. But you see, what I'm trying to get at is, wouldn't it be evil, wouldn't it be wrong, because disaster has got the word star in it, that I now started teaching a doctrine all about the stars? I don't believe it. Now then, we come to the Greek language of the New Testament. That Greek language was in existence and being formed and fashioned hundreds of years before ever it was used by God, either for the Septuagint or the New Testament. And you've only got to look at the etymology of certain Greek words to know that they contained in them pagan ideas. Just the same as this is Thor's day, only we call it Thursday, but none of us are going to worship the god Thor, but there it is. It's there embedded in our language. So that in, from my early days, I began to feel all that I could find some way to eliminate this false uh, application of teaching. And then I began to become interested in the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint, as you know, was a translation of the Old Testament made into Greek anywhere about 300 years before Christ. I'm not going into its fantastic history because I don't believe some of it is true. The thing is, we've got it. The Old Testament in the Greek language before Christ came. And that modelled and moulded the religious expression of so many people 
that when you open the New Testament, you're reading terms which were embedded and in their mind and memory for 300 years beforehand. Nevertheless, you come up against words which you say, well now if I'm going to build my doctrine on the etymology of that word, where do I get? Let me give you an illustration. The word for interpretation of scripture, we call it hermeneutics. And the verb to interpret is hermeneua. Now hermen is the Greek word Hermes, the name of the Latin god Mercury. But you're not going to tell me that the Apostle Paul and my Saviour himself said I've got to have any, anything to do with the heathen gods Hermes or Mercury before I can interpret the scriptures. It's easily become incorporated in the language and that's all. But I found this. It's been proved over and over again valuable that if I see a certain word in the New Testament and I'm not quite sure of myself, then I try to find whether it's used in the Septuagint. And if it is, then I can see what the Hebrew word was that they translated and I'm back to the primitive language as near as I can get to that which is pure. So, I've got the New Testament over that side. I've got a seven-arch bridge called the Septuagint. I take my Greek word across and I'll get to the other side and I'll get its primitive meaning. Let me give you another illustration. The law and righteousness in the Greek language derives from the idea of something established by custom. Well, I'm morally certain you couldn't get the Apostle Paul to believe that the law of Moses was something established by custom or that the righteousness we possessed is what everybody does it so it must be right. But when I cross that bridge and take with me those words, I discover in the Old Testament that the equivalent word is a pair of balances or a plumb line, and you can't argue with either of them. That's righteousness in the sight of God. Something irrevocable, that even God himself cannot alter. He can't alter 16 ounces to the pound, not if he's a righteous God. Well, I've done the same, you see, just with the word Hylaskavai, which we have in the middle of the uh, line underneath the bridge. That is the word in, jo- in Romans 3.25, and in the first epistle of John, where we read that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And you go back to the same word in the Old Testament, and you discover it is once, it is many times translated, the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is made up of the word which we got there, kephar. And now we are back at the original word we can't get further. If there's anything wrong with that world, we just have to watch our step. But that's purer and more the mind of God than we get in these secondary languages. Well, now the first thing I want to do is to make sure that we distinguish between, this is in the large, of course, between redemption and atonement. In Romans 3, we have the two brought together. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's one, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, and that is the equivalent to the word atonement. So now we've got two words that come together. If you will turn with me to three different scriptures, you'll see that this is also recognised and taught in other parts. Ephesians 
chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now there we have the setting free of a slave. Because I think you know already that the word translated forgiveness in this verse is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, where it is used for setting a captive free. That's the word forgiveness here. So this is the Exodus idea, the setting them free from their bondage. But in the same chapter, we have redemption again in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So there's a possession which has been purchased by redemption. And one day, that's going to be redeemed and the forfeit inheritance is going to be yours to enjoy. Now that's the atonement side. That's not the redemption of the person from bondage. That's the kinsman redeemer and all his work that goes to make the whole of salvation complete. It covers the future. Or will you look again at the first of Peter? The first of Peter, chapter 1, 18 and 19. First of Peter. Therefore, as much as we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's redemption from. But now look at chapter 3, 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. One aspect of his sacrificial work is from, and the other is to. Now look again, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from, and purify to. You see the two? I'll read it now complete who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, from, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So there we've got at least indications that the sacrificial work of Christ is not limited to the exodus from Egypt type. It must also include the tabernacle in the wilderness type. We must not only have the Ephesians 1 where we have in verse 7, redemption from. But we must have Ephesians 2, where the same emphasis on the blood of Christ comes, where we have access into the presence of the Father. That's the tabernacle type. Well now, two words are used in the New Testament which confirm this and help to give us a heading. Luke, the ninth chapter, gives us one, and then Hebrews 10 will give us the other. Luke, the ninth chapter, is a record of the transfiguration. Let us read from verse 28. And it came to pass, about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and blistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. 
brought together by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, which we've just read, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, here they are, to bear this witness, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, it's a strange expression in English to speak of accomplishing anyone's decease. This is a serious matter. In what, what did they mean that Christ was going to accomplish a decease? Well, when you look at the original word, you find the word decease here is the word exodus. He was going to accomplish an exodus. And Moses wasn't unaware of the exodus. And neither was Elijah in his limited way. Elijah might have looked at Moses and Moses looked at Elijah on that mountain and said, yes, Moses, you lifted your rod and the Red Sea opened and I folded my cloak and the river opened. We both crossed over and now he's going to do the real thing. We were but types and shadows. But my first point is, there they are acknowledging that the redemptive work of Christ from one point of view is an ex odos. Now if you didn't know a word of Greek and you were suddenly dumped onto a Greek railway station and you didn't know which way to go and you read a finger pointing X odos one way and ice odos the other, well you deserve to be left there if you didn't say exodus means a way out. Well then of course if you've got some, enough gumption to say that you say and I reckon exodus means a way in. So we're going to get that confirmed to us. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Now that enter into is the word isodus, having boldness of a way in. So now we've got the two aspects of the work of Christ. And Hebrews particularly has to do with access. The tabernacle dominates Hebrews. There was no priest and no altar at the offering of the Passover. But there was priests and altars in connection with the tabernacle. So there's two distinct aspects of the work of Christ. One the way out and one the way in. And if you'd like to turn back to the book of Exodus uh, just to see the way in which the Lord has stressed this double movement. He says, in uh, chapter 3. No, I, I think perhaps we'll find it uh, more strongly emphasized in chapter 6. Verse 6 says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. That's the out. And I will take you to me for the people. And in verse 8, and I will bring you in. So it's there, you see, in the mind of God. To bring them out. And to bring them in. And I would say to any, and I'm conscious of my responsibility in saying this, to the wider listener than even in this chapel, that if you are responsible for preaching the gospel, by all means preach the redemption that leads a sinner out from his bondage. But don't leave him on the shores of the Red Sea as though Moses took them there and said, well, good afternoon, I'll leave you now. 
You haven't finished the work of Christ. For he who led them out of Egypt then said, build me a tabernacle so that they understand access and acceptance and all the glorious privileges that belong to redeemed. It's a complete work. He who took them out was going to lead them in. And that is emphasized in the New Testament where we have the redemptive work of Christ followed by the propitiation or the atonement which gives access to the people of God. Well now we want to look at a few of the outstanding features. This section of the uh, chart is under the word redemption. That section is under the word atonement. But whether we're going to cover even the items that are on that chart this evening, I don't know. But I'm sure of this, that it, we're not here to break records with regard to how much we can pack in. We're here to let, as far as possible, the Word of God have an opportunity to speak to our hearts, minds and consciences. But what we omit this evening, we hope to be able to include other evenings because redemption and atonement and its consequences are going to occupy our attention for a number of these evenings. As I think you'll re- realise it's well, well worth it and all that we can give to it. Now, when you look at a few of these outstanding words, underneath the word redemption, I've got three words. Pedar, Pesach, and Goel. Now, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 8, we'll have an instance of the word Pedar. As you'll see, its initial meaning means to separate. Verse 22, and I will sever, that's separation, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people, tomorrow shall this sign be. There's your emphasis. And that word put a division, if you have a marginal rendering in your Bible, is, I will make a redemption. So redemption is a severing thing, a separating thing. Well, of course it must be. You're either a sinner, lost in your sin, and under condemnation, or you've passed from death unto life, and you'll no more come into condemnation. Surely that's a difference. That's a division. It's not a division which you've got to deplore and so all to think of the divisions that are in the church. It's a division that you ought to treasure and say, oh, what a pity that everybody's all mixed up whether they're saved or lost through a false charity. No, says God, I'm going to sever. I'm going to make a division and uses this word that means redemption to emphasize the fact. The lost and the saved. Of course, the danger is that when we speak like that, we become Pharisees and we begin to plume and pride ourselves. But because we do that, it mustn't make us alter the word of God or wish it to be altered. The only thing to alter is that we ourselves need to be altered. I remember once upsetting a meeting very badly when I told them plainly, I said, a Christian is free to do whatever he likes. And I stopped for a minute, I said, the look on your faces tells me what a shocking lot of people you are, because you're immediately jumping to the conclusion that if they do what they like, it'll be something wrong. But as a Christian, you ought to like something right. 
Don't put a person into bondage because he does wrong. That's adding another wrong to it. Teach him. Help him that his likes may be in harmony with his wonderful calling. Not make another a surf of him or a bondage out of it because of his mistakes and shortcomings. Now the next word, Pesach, is the word Passover. And if I turn to Exodus 12, we're there for the rest of the evening. We've already looked at Exodus 12 in another series. Uh, but I think we should have to duplicate it if we're going to make this section complete. But I think myself it's worthy of a complete study. The only thing I'm drawing your attention to is the peculiar word with which I've used to translate the word Pesach. And I think I mentioned before that in my early days when I went to a meeting in the Midlands there was a young man there who <coughs> very much concerned for my welfare from two points of view. His father introduced him to me as a walking famine uh, so that he was uh, growing, you see, and he could never be satisfied with enough food to eat. Well, he didn't reckon that I was any different. So he told me, he said, when they ask you if you'd like a helping of this at dinner time, always say, and then, for they've got something else out in the kitchen. That was one little bit of his kindness, which I didn't uh, accept, of course. And the other was, he quietly came up to me before the meeting and said, excuse me, he said, I think you spelt that word wrong. So I said, well, yes, I've done it on purpose, now you wait. But it was nice, wasn't it? Well now, I just ask you to look at one reference to this. You can find others. Isaiah 31. Where we have this same word, Passover, uh, but the figure of speech and the way in which it alludes to the covering of a bird will help you to understand. Isaiah 31 verse 5. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it, and passing over he will preserve it. Passing over. Pausing over. In the book of Kings, Elijah challenges the priests of Baal and says, How long halt ye? Halt ye? Now that's not passing over and leaving, that's hovering over like a bird, see? And you see it out in the field sometimes, and you say, that looks like a hawk. It's hovering, and suddenly it swoops, well that's destruction. But there's another figure of hovering and spreading the wind, which our Saviour himself quoted. How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen gathereth her chickens under a wing? And every time you read of the outstretched wing in the Old Testament, it's an allusion to this covering, protecting aspect of redemption. When I see the blood, I will pause over you, not pass over you and leave you, I will pause over you and protect you so that the destroying angel shall not come in unto you. Well now in the Old Testament, the word Redeemer in our authorised version, always translates, without exception, the word next of kin, kinsman. That's the word goer. And again, that kinsman redeemer element must be given a, 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 a hearing. It's not possible to cram it in five minutes. It means so much to us. So I'm just mentioning it 
so that you can get it before you and we'll pass on to other things. But, you will notice that in Isaiah, I've mentioned this, he uses the word Redeemer many times. And if you look at the references, you'll find he speaks of the Holy One of Israel, the Creator, as the Redeemer. And all the time that man Isaiah was writing that the Creator is the next of kin. The Holy One of Israel is your next of kin. The Holy One of Israel is using the very same word as your husband's brother. A goel. And he who gives us a problem has given us a solution. How can, how can the Creator be my next of kin? Only by his own condescension, friends, but that's the answer. Unto us, a child is born, as a child born. Unto us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Now you look up the word Mighty God in Isaiah, and you'll find he means what he says. Yet he doesn't hesitate to say that's the name of that child. There's my kinsman Redeemer, who is a man of flesh and blood. And yet, great is the mystery of godliness, he's the one to whom the New Testament attributes creation. The creed says, the Father Almighty is the creator of heaven and earth. But my Bible says, the one that I call Jesus Christ my Saviour. All things were made by him. The heavens are the work of thy hands. Thou remainest. That's Christ. He is the kinsman redeemer. Oh, what a, what a price redemption cost then. If it meant that, coming down to our low estate. And so we have a twofold emphasis on the redemptive side. We have a slave set free, that's the Exodus. We have the inheritance brought back again, but that's which we get in the book of Ruth. And then on top of that, the kinsman redeemer was also the avenger of blood. We don't have that in operation in our society because we pay rates and taxes and the police and all those others do the thing for us. But if you lived in a primitive society, you would be glad to be able to call upon the name of some particular kinsman redeemer to come to your rescue as they did. The moment Lot was taken captive, Abraham couldn't hesitate but he armed his servants and away he went after the army and rescued him. That was the kinsman redeemer putting in what was his due. Well now the other side of the story we won't be able to, to do much with regard to this tremendous aspect except draw attention once more. This is a, a beginning. We've got much to learn as we go on. The primitive word for atonement in the Old Testament is the word kafar or kofa according to the way in which it is used noun and verb and adjective and so on. Kofa meaning cover. Even the word kofa, K-O-P-H-E-R, looks very much like C-O-F-F-E-R, somewhere in which you could put something and shut the lid down and keep it safe. And the first occurrence is in the reference to the ark which God instructed Noah to build and God told him to pitch it within and without with pitch. Now it says the Apocrypha that he who toucheth pitch will be defiled. And you know what it is if you start messing about with tar and pitch 
You get it all over everything. And I can almost imagine, at first, looking at the woodwork all beautifully clean and new, of that ark standing there, then you've got to dab it all over with this dreadful pitch. And you know I think it's the same spirit that you get some very refined people who don't mind reading some of the, um, or say the uh, psalm of love in 1 Corinthians 13, but don't talk to me about redemption by blood. That, that's too savage and too horrible. We're done with that long ago. You see, it isn't so. The most wonderful thing on that golden mercy seat was not the gold with its high polish, but it was the fact that the atoning blood was sprinkled there and remained there untouched for a whole year. Good job they didn't have people with vacuum cleaners and polishes in the tabernacle and they were sure to try to scrub that very thing off that God said gave it its value. We are not accepted because of a golden mercy seat. We're accepted because that golden mercy seat became a mercy seat because blood was shed, brought in, sprinkled and accepted. When I was speaking to the Wednesday meeting on this question once about the atonement being a covering, I said, I, know, I have no need to explain to you people who are dealing with insurance and banks all day long that a covering doesn't mean to cover up and disguise. It means to cover all the responsibility completely. Here's an insurance policy, friends. It's an all-in-one. And you needn't bother to read all the little words that are at the back that you forget till the thing happens and you find you're not covered. Here's it's complete. We, we read in the epistle of the Colossians, we thank God who has made us completely sufficient for the inheritance of the saints in light. Right from your bondage, right to glory, without a possibility of a hitch. As I told you, I think, before, I suggested that our opening chorus at the Wednesday meeting would be Blessed Insurance. Well, I'm not playing because we could have a hymn, Blessed Insurance. What a policy. What a cover. Every possible thing you can imagine that could go wrong is completely covered by this one act of our beloved Saviour. So there's the word covering. Now I'd like you to turn, if you will, to these three or four references where this particular word pitch or cover is further explained by its use in the Law of Moses. First of all, Exodus 21 verse 30. Exodus 21, verse 30. This is speaking about the law that was to operate in the land of Palestine when it was an agricultural and uh, farming population. And God had concern for the well-being of his people, quite apart from the forgiveness of their sins and the worship at the temple. It says in verse 28, If an ox gore a man or a woman, that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten. It's going to make the owner of it realise that this is a responsibility. He's lost the ox completely. But the owner of the ox shall be quit. But, if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, if it's already known that he was dangerous, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, 
The ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. But, again, a little proviso. Certain circumstances may influence the judges to be prepared to accept a fine of money instead of life for life. This is opening a way, you see, for Christ to come and pay a price for us that was not exactly on all fours with what we may have had to pay ourselves. It's the commuting it. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him. There's his ransom. Now that word sum of money is the word kofa, which is the word pitch, which is the word atonement. There's the principle of the atonement. It's making some satisfaction. Is that the next word that's coming? Yes. Numbers 35, 31. Numbers 35, 31. It says in verse 30, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Not one witness. You notice in the illegal trial of Christ, they couldn't get any witnesses until they brought forth witnesses that gave a garbled sort of an accusation that they hurried it through rent their robes and said, oh, we don't need to hear any more. But it says, verse 31, Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer who is, which is guilty of death. He shall surely be put to death. Thou shalt take no satisfaction. That's the word atonement. There is no covering for this. You can't insure against this. This will not be honoured. No atonement for that. That's what the life of the person is in the eyes of his maker. And then you have, in the same 35, verse 33, the word translated again differently. So it says, And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that is fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Dreadful, drastic, yet God was only telling you what he himself was going to pay, and what he himself was going to give, what he himself was going to do, that he might be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So there we have the word cleansed. So it can be translated to cover, it can be translated money, satisfaction cleansed and disannulled to wipe out completely. Well then that is followed on the chart by the five offerings which occupy the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. That of itself is enough and more than enough for one evening but I just ask you to notice there are five different offerings. The burnt offering which is all offered to God without reference to sin at all. The claims of God and man completely uh, recognised. We could never meet either. We could never love the Lord our God nor our neighbour as ourselves. But until you can, you haven't reached that stage of perfection where you can say, I don't need a saviour. 
And then at the other end, the trespass offering, that also recognises the claims of God and man. But if one makes, does a, uh, falls into a trespass, he's not only obliged to offer a sacrifice, but he's got to add a fifth part there too. Now I know that my arithmetic is pretty shaky, but I have come to the conclusion that one-fifth is two-tenths. And if I'm right, a tenth is a tithe, and a tenth is God's portion. So there are two tithes paid. I'm recognising my responsibility to God and man when I'm being forgiven for my trespass. There are some people who look upon the forgiveness of sins as a get-out. As long as God forgives them, they're not going to bother about the fact that they cheated their neighbour or whatnot, but God says you must. That's, suppl- that's a supplement that should be. Well, then we go back to the meal offering, which is in our version the meat offering, because in Old English, meat didn't mean flesh. We speak of sweet meats. And, of course, you, you don't fall into the error of the lady who sat down at the tea table and the host bowed his head and said, we'll say grace before meat. And everybody started eating, but she was waiting. What for? The ham. She misunderstood the word meat. Oh no, it's only fine flour in this. No blood, no flesh. Fine flour, that's Christ. And olive oil, and all the frankincense, all the perfect fragrance and acceptance of that perfect life on our account. That balances the sin offering which was as far removed and opposite as you can think. Dying under a curse. The ashes being taken outside, outside the camp, not allowed to remain in. And then the blessedness of the middle one, the peace offering, right in the middle. The one offering of them all that unites God and the offerer and the priest, for they all partake of this one offering, the peace offering. Well, that's a preface, friend, of what we want to do to make this book speak a little bit more emphatically and clearly when we say that Christ offered himself a sacrifice to God without spot on our account. Or may we rejoice to know that it was done and that we stand accepted, not because we have been patted on the head, dismissed and let off by a kindly person, but we've been acquitted in God's law court and can hold up our face even in that day when the challenge may ring who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect and we shall point straight away to Christ. May every one of us who listen to this tape be able to say unhesitatingly and completely with the first utterance of redemption that we get in the Bible. I'm quoting from Job the 19th chapter. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Blessed are that people who can say that that knowledge is theirs too.